You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Of course, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of our series, it used to hear, the word hearing in the Bible is also synonymous with doing or obeying. So hearing the word of the Lord always demands a response, right? And, and so what a tragedy it would be if we, if we do hear the words of Jesus, his, his rebukes and his encouragements, but yet we don't do anything about it, right? If, if they just went in one ear and out the other, right? If we don't, if we don't humbly allow his spirit to change us and bring us to, to a place of repentance and revival and passion for his name. What, what a tragedy it would be if by the end of this series, which is today, we, we walked out of this building and in our lives or our worldview and our desires hadn't changed a bit. We're the same people we were a month or so ago, right? What, what a tragedy it would be if we, if we looked unto Jesus Christ and upon his loving words for us, calling us to return to our first love, to stand firm in faith and doctrine, to refuse to compromise, to persevere through trials, to wake up from our spiritual slumber, and, and to walk through the open door of mission that he's given us, ultimately to lean on him and our, and our weaknesses for, for our salvation, for our hope, for our strength and purpose. What a tragedy it would be if we heard those words, but just shrug them off with a, that was nice. That was a good sermon. But I don't really need to hear this. And besides, I think I'm doing fine on my own. Not radically responding to his words and, and doing that is basically the same as saying, I don't need Jesus. And maybe it's no surprise then that this is the very tragic issue which Jesus himself has against the church in Laodicea, which we find in the last letter written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So turn with me now to the final passage of our series, Ears to Hear, which is found in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And to that end, with ears to hear, Let's, let's allow the word of God, let's allow the words of our Lord through the power of his Holy Spirit to speak to us and, and change us into who we're called to be until he comes again. So turn with me now, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so one time I was at a restaurant. I ordered, like I usually do, a hot cup of coffee. And when it was served to me at the table, naturally, I you know, took a sip of it. But even as soon as it hit my lips, I spat it back out in the cup like, with, with disgust. Because not only was it tepid and, and chalky, but it, it tasted old. Like it had been sitting there for hours. So gross was an understatement here. And, and, and I like coffee, so that matters to me, right? And, 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 to, be, and to be honest, if, if they'd messed up and just accidentally given me an iced coffee instead, that would have been much more preferable. But a tepid, room-temperature, chalky cup of joe was simply disgusting, right? Can I get an amen? And, and this, Jesus says is his impression and reaction to the church in Laodicea. Can you, can you imagine hearing that from Jesus? He's saying, in, he's saying to them, in their current state, Jesus would spit them out of his mouth. That's, that's a strong reaction. Revelation three fifteen to 16, let's read that again. He says to them, I know your works, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And some people uh, think this is supposed to mean that having apathy in our faith is even worse than being completely against Jesus. Like he wants us to either be fully on fire for his name or cold and against him, right? Just as long as we're not stuck in the middle somewhere. That's worse, right? Anyone ever heard that interpretation preached before? Well, I'm 99.999, the nines are infinite, confident that this isn't what this passage means at all, especially because it would be incredibly ridiculous for Jesus to say he'd prefer for you to be against him. That makes no sense, right? That's, that's, that's silly. So what does Jesus mean when he calls them lukewarm? Well, they would have understand the meaning immediately. They would have known exactly what Jesus is referring to. Let me explain. For while the city of Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy and prosperous city, it had one major problem. It didn't have a large enough fresh water supply nearby. In contrast to them, the the nearby city of Colossae, which was six miles away, had an abundant source of refreshingly cold water. Well, another nearby city about five miles away called Heropolis was known for its relaxing and healing hot springs. And those three churches all had a relationship with each other, by the way. They read each other's letters and stuff. So Colossae, refreshingly cold water source. Heropolis, it's relaxing and healing hot springs. Laodicea, nothing. 
And so because of their own lack of water, that meant that they had to get it from Colossae through a Roman-designed underground aqueduct made of wood and stone. And since they didn't have, you know, water cooling and filtration processes like we do today, this meant that by the time the water made it into the city, not only was it tepid and lukewarm, but it was also full of impurities, and it was pretty distasteful to drink, as you could probably imagine. And it's said that when people uh, who visited the city tried to drink that water, guess what they would do? They would spit it out in disgust. Gross. It's like when you visit Regina and try to drink their water there, <laughs> the tap water. Just kidding to all those from Regina, including my wife. Um. So hopefully with that background, we can kind of have a better understanding of the metaphor here and, and therefore what Jesus is telling them. He's saying, cold water, good and useful. It's refreshing, right? Hot water is good and helpful. It has healing properties and you can clean things with it. Cold water is good. Hot water is good. But lukewarm water, while it may technically still be water, is actually good for nothing. In other words, lukewarmness here isn't referring to apathy or showing little enthusiasm like we usually interpret it as today. Lukewarmness here is a metaphor for being purposeless, for being flavorless, unsavory, gross, not what it's meant to be. Jesus says something similar during, during his Sermon on the Mount, right, when he says, what good is a light? if you hide it under a bushel? Or what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? Right? In the same way, he's saying, what good is water if it's neither refreshingly cold or soothingly hot? Spiritually speaking, Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea that while they may call themselves Christians, practically, morally, spiritually, they've become like practicing atheists or even worldly pagans. And maybe at the heart of the matter, some of them weren't even truly believers at all, as some argue. But part of the problem, though, is that citizens of this city, they, they would have gotten used to drinking this lukewarm water. Right? You know how we get, it's kind of like the same way we get used to drinking our tap water. Which means that after a while, they wouldn't even really notice the bad taste themselves. They wouldn't even realize they're drinking disgusting water. And in the same way, the church in Laodicea had gotten so used to their consumeristic and wealthy lifestyles that they didn't even realize how far from Christ-likeness they'd gone. What does that remind us of? Our culture. Verse 17, it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So covered by the veneer of their prosperity, they don't realize, in fact, they have no clue that, spiritual, that spiritually they're incredibly poor. And this is a direct reflection of the culture in which they live in, though. Their, their attitude is a direct ref reflection of the culture. 
in which they live. In fact, the, the city was so wealthy and so self-reliant, mainly due to their popular and sought-after commerce in black wool and medicinal eye salve, that they'd, they'd actually refused Rome's offer of finances and resources to rebuild their city after they'd also been affected by the earthquake which rocked Asia Minor in 60 AD. They refused Rome's offer to help rebuild the city because they were able to pay for it themselves and they wanted to prove that. They even later made a coin, and, and on it they printed, we did it ourselves. It reminds me of, of my kids when they were one or two years old, and we, we try to feed them, and they'd be like, no, do it self, right? Anyone with kids knows what I'm talking about. I want to do it myself. The, La- the Laodiceans wanted to impress Rome and, and garner their favor by showing off their wealth, wealth by showing off their self-sufficiency. This was the culture of the city. And it seems like this self-sufficient attitude and prideful arrogance had obviously found its way into the church as well. We have money, so we don't need anything or anyone. Maybe they thought they were even impressing God. Maybe they thought they were even favored by God because of all the wealth they had. And maybe even to us, that the condition of the church here, with its prosperity and wealth, which even some of the poorest of the Western churches can still relate to, right? When we look at them, maybe, maybe it seems wonderful. Wow, they must be doing great. They're prospering. Until we realize that Jesus is actually standing outside the door, knocking and desiring to get in. No wonder Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. They'd chosen money over God. They were trusting in their prosperity rather than in Jesus. You know what I find intriguing about these seven letters is that they, they would have come bundled up in one larger letter, the whole book of Revelation, right? Which, which means it's likely that each church would have read the letters to the other churches as well. Specifically speaking, we can assume that, that the church in Laodicea would have read the letter to the church in Smyrna, where Jesus encourages the financially struggling believers in that city to, to persevere by telling them that while they're financially poor, they're actually rich. And yet in contrast to them, Jesus is now telling the Laodiceans, you think you're rich, but you're poor. This would have been such a surprise to them because they probably thought they were rich because they were rich. In those days, again, power and financial prosperity was, was either used as a way to impress the gods or more commonly interpreted as a sign that the gods had favor on you. And we still think that today. We pretend we don't, but we still think that today. We think of, we think of the rich and we think, oh, God must have favor on them. He must love them more than me. And if we're poor, we think, oh, God must not love me as much. God must not have favor on me. Right? We think those things. 
But we can see that, first of all, based on what he says to Smyrna and Laodicea, that the state of our financial portfolio doesn't mean anything in regards to how much God loves us. Right? God loves us the same, whether we're rich or poor. What wealth does often dictate or affect, however, is us and how we relate to God with what we've been given. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? If we're content with little or much, right? it's about being content in God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This is our daily bread, right? God providing for us daily. We'll be content in Him. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we have to understand money in and of itself is not sinful or evil. Okay, we have to, let's clarify. Money in and of itself is not sinful or evil. But yet, as we're continually reminded throughout Scripture, and quite often by Jesus himself, the love of money has the ability to lead us away from God and into idolatry and danger without us even realizing it. Right? It blinds us. And on that note, you, may think, you might be thinking, well, I'm not rich or wealthy, so this doesn't apply to me, right? This doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. This is for the rich people. But first of all, if you live in Canada and you own a jacket and a phone and have a job or go to school or get money from the government because you don't have a job, that means you're already wealthier than most of the people in the world including many of these wealthy Laodiceans. Secondly, then, we need to recognize that the desire or idolatry of money can affect the poor just as much as it does the prosperous. Whether we have it and trust in it over God, or whether we don't have it and, and we crave it to the point that, that we're grumpy or jealous or unhappy and mad at God, Right? It's the same disease that places money on the throne and Jesus outside of our lives. As A.W. Tozer writes, the danger of having too much and the danger of suddenly having not enough, opposite ends related to each other. One is the seamy side of the other, but they are both dangerous. We need help from the lions of prosperity and adversity. The fat lion is prosperity, and the scrawny, hungry lion is adversity. They are both lions, and they are both sources of danger. So yes, this is a warning and a word for all of us. It's a question of what or who we worship and trust in. And human history has shown over 
and over and over again that we tend to look to worldly riches and try to solve our problems on our own with our own resources before we look to God. In fact, when God saved his people and and brought them into the promised land and into prosperity, right? if I'm remembering correctly, it was only within a generation or two that they'd completely forgotten God. He saved them from slavery, brought them into the promised land, blessed them, and then they forgot about him. As Tozer again writes, as other things to trust and appear, we turn from God to them and excuse ourselves eloquently by saying that we are not trusting them. We are trusting God. We do that, right? I don't have a love of money. I, I trust in God. And on that end, again, one of the dangerous things about the love of money is that it has the capacity to blind us to its hold over us. We don't even realize it. And, and this was the illusion that the Laodicean church was under. They were a deceived church. They, they thought they were rich and self-sufficient. They thought they needed nothing and no one else. But really, even with all that I solved, the city was known for, they were actually blind to the reality that where it mattered in the end and into eternity, they were sinfully wretched, pitiful, and poor. And, and if I may be humble, I'm speaking to myself too, and, and honest, this is probably the same cloud of self-deception that some of us are under today. Where we've maybe unknowingly placed our value or, or our trust or our, our source of happiness or faith and joy in things like wealth. And we've excused ourselves by pretending that it's in God. Hashtag blessed. But really, right, when we look at the evidence, we look at our bank statements, you know, what, or what we spend our time and our, on our money on, what we dwell on, what affects our mood, what we desire or value, what we expect God to give us. Where, where does the evidence take us? Does it take us to the throne of grace and to the source of our daily bread? Or does it take us to the bank in our desire for more? Theologian Daniel Aiken writes, We would be wise to learn the lesson of this lukewarm church. We must not be indifferent or ignorant to our spiritual condition, but continually take inventory in the light of God's word. We must face up to our true spiritual condition. Jesus knows who we are and what we are doing. We may say one thing when the truth is altogether something different. We may fool others, and we may even fool ourselves, but we cannot fool God. And this has been the call for us throughout this whole series, Right, to have ears to hear. Right? We're, we're, being, we're being called to humbly examine ourselves according to the word of Jesus. To honestly face up to our true spiritual condition. And then come to Jesus for restoration, for healing, and true life. 
He's not telling us these things to condemn us. He's telling us these things so we can be set free from them. On that end, during Jesus' ministry, a rich man came up to him and told Jesus that he'd done everything right according to the law, and then he asked him, what else must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's read Jesus' response from Luke 18. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. On those who heard it said, then then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So the Laodicean church is likened to the rich man here. When it came down to the nitty-gritty, his his money, his power, and his self-sufficiency was more important to them than placing their trust in God. In fact, until that point, again, he, they, they probably thought their, their wealth was a sign of favor from God. But as Jesus says as well, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you'll find it. The rich man missed out on Jesus in eternity because he didn't want to give up his life, his wealth, his facade of self-sufficiency, his societal status, or whatever. Not knowing that the call to follow Jesus was worth more than anything he had ever had or will have. And don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand here. Not every rich person is called to give up their wealth. Okay? There are a lot of faithful Christ-following rich people. The issue is that this rich man's wealth was his idol, right? And Jesus was calling that out. Again, the sad part about about his choice there is that all those things he chose to trust in instead, all those things will pass away. And like another parable Jesus told about a man who stored up all his treasure for the future and then died that very night, right? The point being, we can't take our worldly wealth with us. It can't save us. It can't rescue us. It can't even make us truly happy or content. More often than not, it just makes us prideful, arrogant, and creates in us an addiction for more. And money's useful, sure. It helps pay the bills, right? It pays for the groceries and keeps the lights on and supports missions and pays for school and all that kind of stuff. Great. But it isn't everything. It isn't all we need. We can't trust in it. As we're reminded at the beginning of this letter, we can only trust in the amen, the faithful witness, the one who was at the beginning. In other words, the one in whom all the world was created through and in whom all God's promises are yes. Jesus alone is the one who can rescue us, who can make us prosper and give us the promises of God, who provides our daily bread, who can make us joyful and content, and who can give us eternal life. Which is why Jesus counsels them in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, 
so that you may be rich. And this currency to, to come to Jesus is always the same. Right? We're, we're called to place our faith, trust, and dependence on him. This is everything because ultimately he's the only one by whom we're given a glorious inheritance in the kingdom of God. That is, we become eternally and spiritually rich by believing and trusting in the one who's already inherited the kingdom through his perfect work at the cross. Worldly treasures, they're going to pass away. But the treasure found in Christ is eternal. Which is also why he says elsewhere to, to store up our treasures in heaven, right, where moth and rust cannot destroy. And how do we store up our treasures in heaven? By living according to his word, by loving him and loving others, by proclaiming the gospel, by practicing generosity, by feeding the poor, by, by sharing and giving to God and others as a testament that we trust in him and not in our money, by being faithful with what we've been given, whether it's much or little. Of course, we're only able to truly give generously only when we have a grounded contentment in Christ and an attitude of thanksgiving towards God. We're, we're able to, to truly be generous when, when we've acknowledged and, and when we remember that, that all we have is really already His. And that all we've been given has been entrusted to us precisely so that we can invest in kingdom things. And only this wealth which is forged by fire and kept for us in heaven, will endure forever. Speaking of which, we, we actually have an opportunity today as a church to show our generosity because there's a member of our church struggling right now to, to pay their rent. And so, you know, in light of this whole message, let's, let's honor God by helping this person out. Let's, let's do that. And you can, you can do an e-transfer. You can put cash in the box with a note on it that says rent, and we'll know where to put it. We'll know where to give it. Let's, let's do that. Does that sound good? Let's be generous and help a member of our church pay their rent. Let's show God that we trust in him over our money. So don't forget to do that. Secondly, in, in Revelation 3.18, in the second half of that verse, Jesus also tells them to buy from him white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So again, wealth had made the Laodiceans think they were self-sufficient. They, they were clothed in that expensive black wool that they made there, and they had that eye salve, that medicinal eye salve, which brought healing to their eyes, which they were known for, but yet, spiritually, they were naked and blind. They needed Jesus. They need Jesus to clothe them and to give them sight. And, and like them, we're all lost without Christ as well. No one's self-sufficient in any part of their life, but especially spiritually. No one's self-sufficient. No one can save themselves from their sin. No one can earn their own salvation. 
Ironically, even Laodicea and all its wealth still relied on the city of Colossae for their water, the foundation of life. And this is the same for us spiritually. We may think we don't need God, or we may think that we don't want to bother him with our problems or our guilt or whatever, or we don't want to bother others in the church with those things either. But we do need him. We do need each other in Christ. He's the living water. He's the foundation of true life. And he wants us to come to him and drink. And again, he's the only one who can help us, the only one who will make us righteous and clothe us in the white garment of purity and holiness. Only through Jesus can we be healed of our righteousness and the self-deception of our sin and idolatry. He alone, by his word and by his blood, brings sight to the spiritually blind and covers us and covers up our shame. And therefore, it's to him and him alone who we should be looking to right now, and asking in light of what we've learned today and throughout this series, Lord, open our eyes to our true spiritual condition. Open our eyes to the sinful blind spots and brokenness and weaknesses and idolatry which we need to lay down at the foot of your cross. Open our eyes so that we may see you and dwell on the truth. Open our eyes that we may see ourselves the way you see us. Help us to see that image of who you've called us to be. And then here's Jesus' promise if we do this and truly come to him in repentance. He says in Revelation 3, 19 to 22, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here again, just as we learned at the beginning of this series, we're reminded that Jesus is only speaking the truth to us out of a love for us, out of a deep love for us. He's only making us aware of our shortfalls and our spiritual condition because he wants to rescue us and bring us back to who we're called to be. And so we have a couple of choices at this point. We can hear his words, and become offended by them. Or we can shrug them off and ignore them. Or we can truly take them to heart. Knowing that Jesus only wants the best for us and that he wants us to know him and come to him and open the door to him so that he can come in. In fact, he wants us to share in his glorious inheritance. He wants us to, to, to prosper as citizens of the kingdom of God. He wants us to be truly rich. Ultimately, when he comes again in glory, he, he wants us to be ready to dine with him at his table. And in, the, in those days, dining together was an act of deep friendship and intimacy. When, when, when Jesus was, would dine at the house of sinners, that's why it was so shocking to, to the self-righteous 
How could he dine with them? But that's telling for us, right? In other words, his desire and love for us is so much that he wants to dine with us and sit at the table with us into eternity. Revelation 19, 6-9 gives, gives us a picture of what that'll look like. Let's read that. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So in this image, the church is, is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And, and, and so Jesus' desire is to make us ready for this, to make us ready for when he comes in glory. He wants us to be blessed. He wants us to be clothed in those white garments of righteousness so that we can sit and dine with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why Jesus died and rose again. And this is why Jesus calls us church to have ears to hear. It's why he's calling us to repent and remain in him. Of course, the, the, this hope and the reality of dining with Christ in eternity is what we bring to mind and what we look forward to as, as, as we participate with Christ in the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love for us. your love for us that, that was so strong that you sent your one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to take our place at the cross. And I thank you that, that it doesn't end there, Lord, but that your love is, is, is so strong that, you, that, that even though you love us as we are, you don't leave us as we are, Lord God that you've called us to partner with you in, in, in proclaiming your name and your glory to the world, that you've called us to be lampstands in the name of Jesus Christ. Yet, Lord, we, you know that we falter in this. And so I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give us ears to hear that we would recognize our true spiritual condition this morning that you would show us where we're at fault where we're in error where we've turned from you where we've put other things on the throne besides you so that we can lay those things at your feet and find freedom from them so that you can restore us Lord Lord, I, I pray that we would not hear these words and then just walk away like we didn't hear them, Lord. But I pray that, that as we've heard these words, as, as we've read your words to the churches, Lord, that it would change us, that it would draw us deeper into you. 
and that, you, that we would be who you've called us to be, Lord. Lights for your name. Proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. We pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.